Welcome, everyone. This is the last week of the ACT series. My name is Dan Fenty. I am the uh, production and communications manager here at the Meeting House, and I'm here with the teaching team uh, with Laura, Quincy, and Jimmy, and we're going to be talking about, or going to be answering questions uh, that came up over the course of the last four weeks of this ACT series. Um, so to start off, Jimmy's going to give us a brief overview just of the ACT series and what we learned the past four weeks, and then we're going to dive into some of the questions that came in. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. And the hope is that as I give a quick flyby that um, this will kind of prime the pump for questions at the end. So y'all in the room here um, will have the opportunity to kind of process what you're hearing and then ask follow-up or just direct questions not related to what we've talked about. Um, and for those of you that are watching at one of our sites, you get the benefit of like listening in on this conversation here locally pre-recorded. Okay, so the Book of Acts is part two of a two-part volume by the author, historian, physician Luke, who is a traveling companion of and chronicler of Paul, most scholars believe. And so what he's doing is he's presenting kind of a frame by frame, but intentional. Every gospel writer has their angle in on um, the message, the story, the resurrection, the life, the teaching, and the ethic of Jesus, right? And Luke is no exception. So Luke writes this two-part volume. One, what did Jesus do and what do we understand about what he did? Luke. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, or better translated as the Acts of the Spirit of Jesus through the Apostles, we get to see the outworking of like what they learned about Jesus and what Jesus taught and then what the early church did with it. And so for our purposes, um, we've been five weeks through the series. Week one, we talked about like that love is, is the language um, that God speaks for all to understand. So the, the manifestation of the power of the spirit through a bunch of people down a side street at a Jerusalem festival, and that is where God meets and speaks through his spirit. Love is the language that God speaks for all to understand. Week two, the work of the spirit in us, helping us to notice the miracle. Notice and pay attention to what's happening uh, all around us and not miss the opportunity to receive and respond uh, to the work of the spirit in us and then the work of, of the spirit that's flowing out of us to serve the world uh, for good. Week three, um, the care of the spirit in and through suffering, that it's okay to stay even when you're not okay, or it's okay to stay and just not be okay in general. And so we read about the, and walked through the stoning of Stephen, the, the first real martyr of the Christian faith, and that he didn't like fight back and say, judgment is gonna come upon you. Instead, like Quincy said, he just reflects the image and likeness of Jesus back to people, even even in the face of an eventual death. And then week four, the power of story and experience that can change our paths and the, the paths of those around us. Um, and then last week, that love trumps law, that God shows no favoritism and that all are invited into life, of, life and love of Jesus through the spirit, including us right now. And so we talked about Cor Cornelius and Kat Von D and that Kat Von D is like a great contemporary today example thousands of years later of somebody who should be out but just is in, captured by the love of God and Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, is baptized. Um, and that in, in each individual ways, we're all kind of little Corneliuses and, and Kat Von D's. We weren't born into this, but we were invited into this by the Spirit of God, this new life of the Spirit. <sighs> so that's the quick flyby of our series and uh, the book of Acts. No more talking for me. Amazing. Okay. All right, let's get into some questions. So we've got, we're gonna start off with an, an easy one for Laura. Easy. Um, this question comes from Elaine, Robert, Paul, Emily, and Kevin. What's the deal with Ananias and Sapphira? Why would God kill this husband and wife? D, 
did he kill them? Is Jesus, is this a Jesus-centered response? Isn't this just like the Old Testament? So a couple questions. That's right. No big deal. That's right. No big deal. Yeah, so I was reading about this the last couple of weeks more specifically, and generally every scholar and commentary that I read agreed that this is one of the hardest uh, stories in the New Testament to deal with, to handle, to know. So that's like upsetting as we try to start answering this question, um, but also maybe encouraging somehow too, that as we finish this conversation, we're probably still gonna have questions around this and that it's not an easy one to land, so that can be okay. Um, N.T. Wright even was saying as part of his commentary that if he had been the person putting together the New Testament, he might have been tempted to just kind of leave this story out. Like maybe we'll just put this one in a drawer and save it for later. But it feels like a story from the Old Testament. And for sure it draws this parallel for us of the story of Achan from Joshua chapter seven, where also something that was meant to be dedicated to God, something that was meant to be fully given over and wasn't, and leads to pretty severe consequences right away. But the problem comes in the New Testament because we think a shift should have happened with the cross. How do we have the same kind of feel of story of how God's interacting with people or how people are perceiving that um, after Jesus? And so that's where the problematic piece comes. And I think it's good that we're confused. It's good that we're upset because just a kind of straight reading of it doesn't line up with who we believe Jesus to be. And so for me, when I come to a space like that, I think it's good to be unsettled. And if we were just kind of okay with it, if we didn't have these questions, uh, that that would be concerning. So we lean into the questions and we don't need to be afraid of them, but then also pay attention to what is it that God is trying to say? What are we trying to learn through these scriptures? So quick recap, when we get to Acts chapter five, just before that, we've been hearing about Barnabas and this encourager and how he sold all his property and gave the money to the apostles and that they were sharing with the people who are in need. That's the end of chapter four that we had talked about before. And so when we were talking about that earlier, we were talking about how this is the hands, right? Like this is the hands in action. This is the living out. We see the vitality of the spirit in the people and how it's affecting the way that they live. And so then comes the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter five. They sell their property. They also give the money to the apostles, but they lie about how much they gave and they keep some of the money back. They keep some, but they say, here's the whole money. And so Peter comes right out and asks them, why? Why did you lie? Why did you say that it was everything when it was only part of it? You could have just been honest. Like no one's compelling them to give in the first place. No one's compelling them to say that it was everything. Why did they make this choice to lie? And so he talks about in verse four, or sorry, in verse three, Peter says it very directly, not just lying, he says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept some of the money for yourself. And then at the end of verse four, he says, how could you do a thing like this? You weren't just lying to us, but you were lying to God. And the impact of this is immediate. Ananias falls down. And then as his wife comes in later, Peter gives her the chance to also comment on what has happened, but she repeats the same lie, repeats the same falsehood, the same intentional deception, and then she also falls down. And so everyone who hears this, it says, is terrified. The people are terrified. Great fear grips the entire church. This is hugely serious. Something that was 
dedicated to God, something that was meant to be for his kingdom work has been desecrated. But it's not about the money itself. It's about what it represents. And so when we land at these questions, and I want to ask, why does this matter so much? Why does this particular moment matter so much? And so some of what I was learning was pointing back to the context of what has happened in Acts before this. And we were talking about that in the first week of Acts, about how the Holy Spirit has come and is here now, how the people are the new temple. And so this is a shift that has happened. The very presence of God is in the community, in the people themselves. And so when they're saying, here's the thing that we're giving to the community, but it's, but it's a lie, it's a falsehood, it's not about the money, it's about the thing that they are causing damage to, the thing that they're halting, and that is the people of God, which is the very presence of God. That's the thing that they're causing injury to. That's the thing that they're trying to um, cause harm to with their lies. So this matters to God. This is the very holy of holies in and amongst the people because the Holy Spirit is there. And so it can't be taken lightly. The intentional deception becomes a threat to the people of God themselves. And so it's not the money, but rather the Holy Spirit that's there. Ananias and Sapphira are lying about their contribution to the community itself. And by doing that, they call into question the value, the authority, the authenticity of God's presence with his people. And God will not have this. He will not have it. This is his people. This is his church. And Peter calls out how this is Satan using Ananias to try to destroy the outworking of God's presence in his people. And so I think it becomes a picture for us for me, of the seriousness that it is to be the people of God, not in a way that brings fear, but in a way that brings this deep understanding of how much God is present with us and how it changes who we are. And so it's not just about property. It's not just about what we're giving. It's about us understanding we are the temple. And we need to take it seriously for ourselves. We need to take it seriously in community. And we talk about the way that we contribute, the way that we come together, that God's presence with us changes um, the way that we interact, the way that we handle things as we go. And that's it for that. Wow. <laughs> We're right now. All right. Take a breath. Anything? Yeah. No, not for me. <laughs> no. I would just say... Um, Okay, I have a couple things to add. Um, agreed. It's it's a sucky text to read through. Um, it, not only is it, I think, does it harken back to Joshua, but also in a Leviticus series, we talked very briefly about like the strange fire section of Leviticus, where there are these two men who are in charge of caring for this new construct that will be the mechanism through which people um, connect with God. And they decide to go their own way, do it their own way, bring strange smoke, strange fire into the holiest of holies. And then they're just like a, a bolt of lightning literally shoots out or a bolt shoots out from the holiest of holies and strikes them dead. So I think as a Jewish boy or girl reading, hearing, or uh, replaying this, you'd be like, this is strikingly similar to other stories that we've heard uh, in our faith tradition. So it wouldn't be, it's a little, there is a different context for us today. We're like, that's crazy. Like I've never known anybody to get struck down by 
anything coming into church, what's happening here? But it is a different context. The second thing that uh, one of my spiritual mentors, as I kind of talked through this, this, the text does not actually say that God killed them. Uh, the actual Greek text says um, they, uh, Ananias, for both Ananias and Sapphira, they fell down as though asleep and yielded their souls fell down as though asleep and yielded their souls. So does that mean that they died? Yeah, it seems so. And um, Peter will refer to it as will Paul later. Um, but it does not say that God killed them. We're left to struggle with, I would say, but also extrapolate on okay, who. I think maybe from a Jesus-centered, uh, a Jesus hermeneutic, maybe what helps us get to there. And a Jesus-centered hermeneutic means we translate everything through Jesus, including scripture. We don't tra- translate scripture. We don't do the, the, the opposite way around, right? So with the Jesus-centered hermeneutic, um, again, where does that get us. Uh, One of the pointers in good Anabaptist tradition is exactly what Laura said, that Peter says to Ananias, Satan has filled your heart, right? So um, again, it's not clear either way in the text, but we're left to extrapolate, well, who is the killer, the thief, the destroyer? Is it Jesus? Or, or is it God by his spirit? Or is it the, the power and principalities, the governor, the prince of the air um, that is trying to snatch, destroy, and end this movement of God that's at work? Mm-hmm. Again, th- the answer is unclear. It is a troublesome text and it should arrest us a little bit, but I'm just not quite there fully to be like, no, you know, at the end of the day, God gets to kill who he wants to kill. Mm-hmm. God is the giver and also the ender of life. I'm like, that's yucky. The end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots to think about there yeah. for sure. Okay, let's let's move on to question two. This one's for Quincy. Um, Sarah asks, I'm not sure I understand the difference between speaking in tongues in Acts 2 versus what we see in more charismatic churches today. Is there a difference? And is this also somehow different as spiritual, uh, different from spiritual gifts as a whole? Yeah, that's a good question. And the, the short answer would be yes, there is a difference. Um, What we read in uh, the book of Acts primarily, we see it for the first time in Acts chapter 2, is the introduction of the Holy Spirit in God's people. And the evidence of that is the disciples speaking in a known language, a language that people that are around can completely understand. It's, it's, It's... it's a time of the of a, the big Jewish festival, the Pentecost. People are from all coming from all over, and as the tongues are being uh, spoken, people are picking up and oh, I hear my own, I hear my language. Yeah, that, like, it's 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 made clear and it's understandable. So we read about this in, in a few other instances in the Book of Acts, but then what we see later on uh, in some charismatic churches is something a little bit different. And I think, uh, Paul references this in, um, uh, first Corinthians, first Corinthians, uh, 14, I think 14, 14 and 15, he talks about this and, uh, and he's talking about a, a different kind of tongue. So, it, and we have to sometimes approach these things with some humility because we're talking about a, a supernatural phenomenon. And we're trying to we're trying to explain it like with our language, a limited language, and trying to make sense of it. Some of it we can uh, we can use our own experience. Some of it we can uh, take what we read in scripture. But there is a humility I think that we have to hold from it. But but what we read about in First um, Corinthians 14 is something more of a, a language that can't be understood. 
by the human ear. It's, it's, a, it's a heavenly language. Mm -hmm. And the implication is that this is like a, a personal love language between somebody who has that particular gift and God. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually, it doesn't make sense to the person. This is the way Paul's describing it. It doesn't make sense to the person who's saying it, but there's a, there's a way that it's somehow, uh, Paul describes it as edifying the soul of the person who's, who's speaking it. So in that sense, there would be a difference. So there's um, a commentator, he talks about it, puts it into this simple category. He says, the greatest law is to love God and love others. Consider the, uh, the private prayer language to be loving God, right? That's, a, that's an up and down. And then the uh, loving others would be this edifying of like, oh, wow, that's my language. I understand that. So now that being said, um, Paul does say that if this, uh, if this personal language that doesn't have an origin is being spoken out loud or in a public setting, that it's beneficial for the rest of the body that somebody else would have a corresponding gift, right? So, so you've got all these gifts, right? So you've got a gift of speaking in tongues, so speaking this language. But then if you're going to do it publicly, Paul says, there should be somebody else in the midst that has a gift to interpret that language, mm -hmm. to be able to make it make sense for the rest of the group, right, yeah. for the people. Because if not, then it can, um, Paul warns that it can, can can create uh, a lot of confusion mm -hmm. and disunity. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'll even uh, Paul, when he's talking about it, he talks about uh, orderly worship. But he starts off in, in chapter 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Mm. So he's, he's talking about um, this idea that, yes, so tongues is a, is, a, is a gift that edifies the person who's speaking it. It can be kind of cool for people. It's like if there's, oh, like I understood what that meant, and then for that to be a public thing. And um, the challenge comes, and I, and I, I come from a, a Pentecostal background. Like I have that experience, and I've seen this this gift in action and it's beautiful and it can be like, just like blow your socks off. Wow. That's amazing that that happened and it all kind of connects in a way. I've also seen it uh, not so helpful mm. where um, when sometimes this idea of um, what we see in the, in, in acts mm. as this being the initial evidence of the Holy spirit being like, this is the way that you know, the Holy spirit is, is with you somehow gets brought into our current context. And it's like, well, this is the way, see it, it was here. So now this is the way. So for people that don't have that gift, and in my experience, most people don't have that gift. If they're made to feel as though this is the way I know the spirit is with me, two things can happen in my experience. One is uh, they can feel as though, well, I must not be equipped or prepared or loved by God to have this particular gift that shows that I have the Holy Spirit. That's bad. Um, I would argue even worse would be they desire it so bad, they're not, they don't have it, and then they end up faking it, pretending that it's there and it's not, which can be equally, um, maybe even more damaging. But the, the principle that we see is, in Acts, it's an opening, it's an extension. It's, an, it's, a, it's a sign that the, the kingdom of God is expanding, it's getting wider. Um, many scholars, and I, and I love this picture, they, 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 Consider it to be the reversal of, of what happened in the Tower of Babel in uh, Genesis chapter 11. And that's where all of the languages end up getting confused, right? God comes down, confuses the language, where now with the in, um, 
introduction of the Holy Spirit getting put on people, mm -hmm. that's actually flipped on its head. And now the language actually brings unity where it's like where there is division, it's like, no, 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 I'm actually unifying the language. So, so the ethic is to include more people. And then later on, when you read in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, again, it's to edify the body. It's to edify the person. If it's privately a private lo love language to God, it's to give edification to you personally. Or if there's an interpretation to somehow bring edification and, and life and love into the community. Mm -hmm. so. Quincy, can you say more about, um, like I remember when I was first coming back to faith out of a very conservative tradition, and if I heard you say the gifts of the Spirit, immediately my brain just exactly mm -hmm. comes back to the like, ooh, that's that weird like uh, speaking in tongues thing, but there are other gifts that are li listed that, that are li seem a little less popular in Christian tradition, but they're they're lengthy. So what does that look like in terms of like, today, if it's not tongues, what are the other gifts and what are they supposed to do in general? Yeah, well, you've got, you've got your power gifts, which would be maybe in the, like, get you, get you know, a little, yep. little puckered up a bit or a little nervous, I don't know. Uh, so those, those gifts would be like, a, like a words of wisdom or prophecy or speaking in tongues, more, more power gifts. Um, but then you've got hospitality and you've got like helps and you've got mercy and you've got these spiritual gifts that so there's there's a number of lists that you see in scripture but I don't know that any of them are exhaustive right like so you'll get little like so you'll get a list here and then you'll get one there some some of the gifts overlap but others are missing in other places I think the point isn't that we have this this specific list of uh, of getting all of the gifts right but what I think is important for us to know is that regardless of the spiritual gift and I think that that as followers of Jesus, we all, we all have access to these gifts, like some gift yeah. you're given. But what's more important, I think, is that we are, um, every, every gift of the Spirit is preceded by the fruit of the Spirit, which is more about uh, your so character, good. right? Yeah. So love, joy, peace, all of those things. Because again, like in, the, in a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's talking about that all of these gifts, all of these things mean nothing if there's no yeah. love, right? Mm -hmm. So you can have these gifts, you can have an example of power and all that stuff, and it's great, oh wow, like, you know, healing is happening, all these things, but if you don't have love, he says it's all, it's it's all for noise. nothing, right? It's yeah. just noise, mm -hmm. yeah. Really good, so good. And I love tying the two manifestations of speaking in tongues to loving God and loving others. That's something I haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool, like, memory trigger. Yeah. Um, Let's go to the third question. This one's for Jimmy. Dwayne and Eric ask, what is the point of the eunuch in Acts 8? Uh, and what is a eunuch? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a good one, yeah. Pray for me in this my hour of need. I feel like I got the easy one. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll give a trigger warning. Um, some of the, the language and description that I will use will be graphic in order for us to understand the gravity of like what we're actually reading here. So fair warning to uh, watching at one of our sites or online and here in the room. So what is happening is um, Stephen has, so there's, there's the group of people that have been elected by the apostles to serve, to serve and support, right? Um, so they're the first deacons or, or ministeria, the ministers. Um, so they're, they're there to serve the church. And then immediately, as soon as like this gift of hospitality starts manifesting itself by the spirit, this great wave of persecution snaps in. So when people try to serve each other in the likeness and ethic of Jesus, surprise, surprise, the enemy of the air and the enemy of our souls is like, I don't love that. 
So um, Stephen is stoned and then Philip is visited by an angel of the Lord, which again, as a good Jewish boy or girl, you'd be like, what, is, what are these visitations about? Like, holy smokes, it just seems to be popping off everywhere. And he's told to go to uh, Gaza or, or to travel, right? Um, which is a big deal for somebody who's like, yo, I'm just a minister. Like I make the soup, clean the feet, set the tables. And now God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah but you'll also do this. So go, uh, go and serve and I'll, you know, there'll be somebody there for you to connect with. Mean Whilst, this um, Ethiopian eunuch who's um, made the distance from about 1,500 miles away, likely to a Jerusalem festival, to, to be part of the, the Jewish ceremony of cleansing in order to worship at the temple. This Ethiopian eunuch has made his way um, to Jerusalem, and most scholars would agree that he's been turned away. So the Sadducees were the religious authority that kind of brokered how um, worship and sacrifice uh, happened in the temple. Um, and eunuchs were always disqualified, right? Just by virtue of not, not their ethnicity so much, so much as their viewable gender and the understanding of their gender, which um, for a eunuch was very um, foggy. So Jesus will refer to this also in Matthew 17, I believe it is, and talks about like the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus around like divorce and remarriage. And Jesus is like, listen, it's not just these binary categories. There are also eunuchs, those who are born this way, those who are made this way, uh, and those who choose this way. So don't get it twisted. God still shows no favoritism and is including anybody and everybody regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic reality, demographic, place of birth, and what their genitals look like honestly. Uh, so then we fast forward to the story in Acts chapter 8. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Arrhenius and Jerome in, antiqu in Antiquities, they um, signal that this story is so impactful and included in the book of Acts because the, the queen of Sheba or the queen in Ethiopia likely was gifted children by Solomon. And so this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is likely in some way, shape, or form, a descendant of Solomon. So Jewish by birth, right? Not all the way Jewish, but Jewish by birth. So would be permitted to come to the temple, but not in the temple by virtue of um, th the what's happened to their body. Here's the trigger warning. As an Ethiopian eunuch or an uh, and specifically Ethiopian eunuch, but eunuchs in general would have their, would be um, sold or taken as children pre-adolescent. And for males, they would have um, their testicles crushed uh, and part of, if not all of their genitals severed off. So what would happen is as you grew, you just never went through the journey of adolescence. And so these boys um, would not produce testosterone. They would grow breasts. Uh, they would retain quite a significant amount of body fat because of like the interruption of their physiology and as well their voices would not lower. And so you're looking at a person who by virtue of their genitalia, their body type and their presentation are intersex or are unclear sexually who and how they were. This is a terrible, terrible reality. And this is the danger in some cases of what religion does when it's trying to categorize people. So that's the background. You still with me? It gets worse. So... Um, this eunuch is partially, is all sorts of partiality, is um, partially Jewish, but not quite Jewish, is partially male, but not quite male, is partially female, but not quite male, is partially 
clean by virtue of their birth, but not quite, and have no access to the temple uh, in order to be ceremonially cleansed, uh, cleansed at, in the baptismal pods, which the Sadducees brokered in order to perform their sacrifices and worship God. This person, um, they, them, is excluded. They are, they are just, they cannot make worship and sacrifice. And so most scholars would uh, affirm that um, Philip is catching this person on the way back. Not on the way to, on the way back. They have not been able to bring sacrifice. Uh, and we read that the Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot. So he's not, they're not poor. They're in their chariot or their, their um, travel vehicle. And they're reading the Isaiah scroll. So they're reading Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah 53? It's the, it's the hymn of the suffering servant, right? Mm-hmm. So it's talking about the servant who is afflicted and striped, but... Um, is, is uh, making freedom and way by virtue of it. And so Philip approaches and says like, do you understand? He's the Philippi- uh, Ethiopian eunuch is reading this aloud, is reading Isaiah 53 aloud, uh, and is obviously, we can assume, like devastated by its content and is likely saying, this is me. Like I've just had my life blown apart for what? And I can't even approach like the gentleness of God or the connection with God because of everything that's happened to me that is out of my control. Philip comes up to him and says, what are you reading and do you understand? He says, no, is this about me or is it specifically somebody else, right? And Philip says, it's about Jesus. And then tells him the story of like the Christ Messiah who went through everything, uh, not in the same way, but suffering physical, emotional, mental, uh, relational, spiritual suffering in the same way that this eunuch did. And what do we read is this eunuch's response. I don't get it. No, he totally gets it. He's like, yeah, I've suffered right alongside this Messiah. I want in. I don't need to go to, to Jerusalem anymore. So what is, there's a body of water right there. What's standing in between me and that getting baptized? And Philip doesn't say, well, listen, based on our Jewish custom, we really, Jesus wasn't super clear. John the Baptist was clear about baptism. Jesus, I don't know. No, he says, uh, absolutely. Dunkaroo. And they go and dunk. And then it's fascinating. I won't get into this, but then um, Philip is caught up, is snatched away, the Greeks, uh, the text says. And that doesn't freak the eunuch out. He's overcome with this joy of now being connected to this new way of God and Jesus that he is sent on his way, heads back 1,500 miles, rejoicing, rejoicing. So what is the message here? It is again that God shows no favoritism. It doesn't matter your your gender, your religious background, your wealth or lack thereof, your skin color or lack thereof. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic class or even the religious baggage or pain that you've come with. You are accepted and loved by God with unequivocally. You are loved and accepted by God and invited into the way of Jesus who wants to cleanse and save you from a life that you were never meant to live of suffering and separation into inclusion and intimacy and that this is the new way of these disciples and way of Jesus that's taking over the world by the Spirit. Okay, we have lots of good questions coming in online, but we have so much already. Um, I want to turn things back to Laura. She's going to close us in a um, spiritual practice and reflection, but we will come back to these questions in just a moment. Can do. Yeah, I would love to invite you to just get comfortable for a minute, and we want to do the work of it's so good to be in our heads and to ask questions, and then but we want to let it settle settle into our bodies, settle into our spirit. So if you want to be comfortable and your feet on the ground, if you can, and um, 
take some deep breaths. Take some deep breaths. You can close your eyes or just soft downward glance. And yeah, we just want to pay attention. Pay attention to God's spirit with us. Pay attention to the things that we've heard, the things that we've felt, the things that we've thought, and let it settle or let it rise. Just give it space. Give it space to be in the whole of who we are. Without fear, Lord, we come exactly as we are, full of questions. And we want to let the truth that we know about who you are inform how we understand and sit with those questions. Rather than letting our questions inform what we believe about who you are. We want to let the truth of what we know revealed to us by your spirit who is within us to inform how we sit with our questions and not let our questions inform who we believe you to be. So Jesus, here we are with our questions. And we say, Lord, let them settle in your spirit or let them simmer in your spirit. Let them rise in your spirit, Lord, to reveal something new about who you are and what you have for us. Let the things that we've heard, let the questions that we have be places where we meet you. Let us be at rest exactly as we are in the presence of the God who calls each of us his beloved. I'll just sit in one more minute of quiet, breathing and resting in God with us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hey, friends, thanks for diving in and participating in our teaching from this uh, last weekend. Um, we pre-record the teaching live every Wednesday night, and this past Wednesday night was really impactful in just spending some time in extended Q and A. And so uh, we're going to post the extended Q&A at um, themeetinghouse.com slash Wednesday stream, and you'll also see it on our YouTube channel. So feel free to dive in there for a longer conversation around questions around the book of Acts. 
and further on. And I'll also make mention that, uh, yeah, our teaching uh, Wednesday pre-record has that Q&A portion every single Wednesday. And so I'd invite you to be a part of that. You can go to themeaninghouse.com slash Wednesday stream and be part of the extended version of the teaching. We'll see you then.